0: Welcome to the latest Test Talks radio episode. Uh, As many are aware, we're currently in the testing period for Protocol 007. There's still a few questions lingering around, so we'll try to get into some of those today. Uh, We have myself, William McKenzie of Tezos Commons, uh, Brian Lee of Tezos Commons, and Gabriel Alfor the lead developer of Ligo Lang, and one of the people behind 07. How's everyone doing this morning, uh, night, and afternoon? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you go first, Gabriel. How are you doing?
2: Oh, uh, quite well. Uh, working uh, on assembling the new team uh, to work on core matters uh, it takes a fair amount of time, but it's really exciting, and that's mostly what's taking up my time lately.
1: Glad to hear. Yeah, I'm doing well as well. Uh, I'm the one who is doing this at night here, so I'm very excited to dig into this conversation. So, Will, can you get us started? What's on What's on the list of topics first? Uh, sure. So, Gabriel, we usually ask
0: everyone who comes on here this, um, but could you get a go into your uh, background a bit and maybe discuss your journey into crypto and how you ended up where you are.
2: Yeah, sure. Uh it started a, a few years ago. Um basically when I was younger, uh like when I, I was still out of age, I wanted to have my own company, to have my own bank account and online activity. Uh and I could uh not my parents were not uh internet savvy, they were not at ease with all those matters and wanted me to focus on school in general. Um so that then I was already uh, quite interested in uh, crypto because of those reasons, uh, because of uh, like, uh, how it could uh, make you independent, basically. Uh, it still was not uh, quite as, disla- uh, as developed as I wanted Like so that anyone would use crypto and things like this. But uh, because of this, I was very interested for ideological reasons. Uh, like it was myself as a child, but I could easily... Uh, Like, uh, imagine the situation of everyone else uh, who needed the same kind of access that I did. Uh, But uh, I kept going at school. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, Later, uh, I actually needed to make money. Uh, And uh, crypto is a really nice way uh, to make money, uh, as in uh, as most new fields. Uh, There are like, there were a couple of other fields that I could have been interested to, such as AI and things like this. But I was mostly drawn right. to crypto because of the ideological part uh, that I felt very aligned with. Back then, I was mostly interested in layer 2 solution. From a point of view, uh, I expected layer 2, uh, like most activity in crypto, to just move to layer 2. So I wanted to create my own blockchain uh, that was mostly about bootstrapping layer 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point in time, uh, I got a mail uh, from the account mailing list that says, uh, hey, we're building a blockchain in France. We're paying you well. Uh, We uh, are like a self-amending blockchain. So whatever you want to add, you can just add it to to our blockchain and things like this. And I was very interested. Uh, I (laughs) I, I I didn't care about the blockchain being my blockchain in particular. So the idea of having a team already working on something that I could just improve on to add the features that I wanted was very attractive. Uh, although I never wanted to be an employee, uh, they were like very uh, amendable, let's say. Uh, I could work remote full time. Uh, I could work whenever I want as long as I delivered and things like this. And that's why I came to work uh, for Nomadic Lab, uh, like back before it was Nomadic Labs. Uh, and after a year of this, uh, I went on to make uh, Lego because. The only programming language back then uh, was uh, Liquidity, and we needed an alternative. And now, uh, a year after Ligo, I think it's in uh, it's in a pretty good shape now. Uh, and I mostly want to work on Core again. Uh, it, it's not in the state that I hope it would be, uh, and so I hope uh, to be able to contribute to this.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty exciting story. Could you talk a, a bit more uh, about the development of Ligo?
2: Yeah, Um, so about legal, uh, (laughs) there are uh, many different ideas, but the the main one, um, which is uh, the the thing that takes a lot of time, is to have a simple core. Um, Like in a lot of programming languages, you have this thing called the AST. The AST, uh, the abstract syntax tree, is um, basically the internal representation of your language, and it's not shown Mm -hmm. to you. So usually that's where you will see a lot of uh, you know, technical creep coming. And the, the, the ASTs will become like very large, hard to maintain, and things like this. Um, yeah. And as users, we, we do not really care. But if you want to do any kind of formal verification of your language, or certified population, or building tools, and things like this, it, it is quite crucial to have a simple AST. For, for instance, uh, if, if you get a camel, and it's AST or the, or the typer, uh, those are like notoriously and famously a, a big mess, uh, which makes it hard to hack on the language. Uh, I basically wanted the opposite for Lego. Uh, I think it's really important for a blockchain programming language uh, to be simple so that you can do formal verification on it directly and so that you can actually try to do certified compilation. Certified compilation is this idea of writing a compiler that also has a proof that it's correct. So the idea is that uh, if you have a certified compiler, you can reason on Lego directly rather than having to compile Lego to Mikkelsen and then reason on Mikkelsen. Mm, Uh, So that's what I've been uh, trying, uh, and I think we uh, managed to do so successfully. Uh, We have a prototype for uh, the biggest uh, part of the compiler, uh, of a certified compiler. Um, for the people who are technically interested, we uh, we basically have something that goes from a kind of from the calculus to Mikelson, and that has been proven in So that, that's pretty cool, and we're working on integrating it. Uh, other thing that it, lets, uh, it let us do is to have multiple syntaxes. Uh, for instance, you know that there is a Pascal, Ego, a Camel Ego, Reason Ego, and they all have the same uh, internal representation, so you can go from one syntax to the other. Uh, quite easily. All right. And, uh, yeah, we're also creating a new language from scratch. So we need to build tools, and we now have a uh, language uh, server protocol extension for VS Code. We're adding it to Emacs and things like this. And it takes much less effort than it could have taken with a like more regular programming language. Uh, with yeah. A big so, yeah, that's mostly the, the main focus of, of LIGO, making the internals uh, simple. It also means that there are some things that we don't do that could make uh, the developer experience uh, simpler, as it would lead to technical creep. Uh, And we're aware of this, and to fix this, uh, I'm mostly planning to fix the the problems that are in core, uh, at the core level, at the Tezos level, rather than doing patches uh, at the legal level, because this is where I am. Uh, (laughs) That would be a wrong reason to do so. So yeah, that's mostly the the main philosophy.
1: Awesome. Well, that is actually like all pretty cool. Like you just talked about a whole bunch of stuff. So I just want to like get in get in, get into it a bit more because I think a lot of our uh, listeners here, you know, they're not extremely technical. So the more that we can kind of break things down and talk about uh, why these things are important, I think it would be better. So I've actually prepared kind of a small list of questions about Lego. You know, I'm not really a developer myself. I can do a little Python, I can do a little Golang, like everyone can, right? Uh certainly not to your level, but I think that we can uh dive deeper into this a bit. And one of the most interesting things that uh is on my mind is just I've never actually talked to someone who designed a programming language. So from like a meta perspective, like I just want to know when you're designing this new programming language, like What exactly is the process for that? Like, I feel like when I hear, oh, someone is designing a new programming language, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, are they writing that in another language or is it like the language that they're designing? Can you talk a bit about that? This is just for my personal kind of interest.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a super great question, uh, actually. Uh, (laughs) In general, I say that there are uh, three ways that you want to do uh, something that important from scratch. Uh, the first one will be uh, to base yourself on theory. So for programming languages, we have like uh, formal models of what is a programming language uh, and the most famous now, uh, one is a Lambda Calculus. So Lambda Calculus is like a minimal programming language with only functions and that's it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and there have been decades uh, of research on Lambda lambda Calculi, all variants of Lambda Calculus, all type systems, uh, all interpreters, like everything that you can imagine, it has been done on Lambda Calculus. So if you want to design a programming language based on theory, that's what you would use. The other approach will be to make one based, let's say uh, on practice. What I mean by this is that you will take an existing programming language and then uh, amend it so that it fits your goals better. Uh, an example of this will be, uh, for instance, ReasonML. ReasonML is not an entirely new programming language. It's mostly taking OCaml and making it uh, easier for a web devs. Uh, another example would be TypeScript, where you have JavaScript and then you add the type system on top of it. So that would yeah. be the approach, the practical approach, I would say. And the last one will be the one based on authority. So there you will just find like someone who did a great programming language and then ask them to make a programming language design uh, for like to your constraints. Uh, it's a bit of a leap of faith. You, you have to trust that person. Um, yeah. But uh, if you know uh, like a genius, that, that could work basically. Uh, so for Lego, uh, I prefer to take uh, the theoretical approach. Uh, so the core of Lego is very similar to lambda calculus with some extra constructors. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea is that once you have this, you can reuse uh, all those decades of theory. Uh, If you want to do static analysis, if you want to do formal verification, uh, certified uh, compiling, and things like this, you can just reuse those decades of research and be uh, way more confident than in an entirely new model that you would have come up with. Uh, There was the possibility of uh, picking something practical, but the problem with practical things is that there aren't that many good practical things for blockchain right now. Uh, there, there, we still have a lot of experimentation and things like this. Uh, and rather than participating in those new experimentation, I prefer to take uh, something that was uh, more uh, general and more uh, well-established, basically. Yeah.
1: yeah, I think if you're building something with a focus on safety, it's, I think that's a very important aspect.
2: Yeah, the, that was mostly uh, my main concern. Before doing legal, uh, uh, Like, as a lot of uh, geeks in this realm, uh, I made my own programming language, which uh, had a very different focus. It was mm. on theory, not on practice, not on authority. It was an entirely new idea of myself. Uh, it was really complicated. Uh, the, dev, uh, the developer experience was terrible. It was not meant to be widely used. And so there, uh, I like I had a completely different design process that it, it was obviously not something that I would do for a <laughs> for a smart contract language.:
1: <laughs> That's awesome. That's something that I've always wondered, like as someone who's trying to start to dive into codings, just like all these programming language, like how how did they get made? So thanks, thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that dive into that. So the next thing that i want to get into is lego's role in the tezos ecosystem so as we know uh you know all of these things kind of compile down to mickelson so i think some people might be asking like oh why doesn't everyone just write it like in the base language like why do we need these like high level uh languages that maybe help the developer workflow like that might be the main um need for that. But can you talk about uh Lego's role in the Tezos ecosystem, like pros and cons compared to writing directly in Mickelson and any other thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Um, Then I think the the question is not that much about Lego, but more about Mikkelsen. But yeah. So the, the fact that you have to ask this question shows that there is um, something wrong. Um, by that I mean, uh, that let's say you're writing in Golang, uh, you will never ask someone writing in Golang why are you writing in Golang rather than Assembly or something like this. Yeah. Um, yeah like, like it, it's obvious that uh, Assembly is designed to be uh, efficient for the machine, and Golang is designed to be efficient for the developer. And so it should be the same thing um, with Ligo and Mikkelsen. Mm -hmm. very ambiguity comes from the fact that uh, initially, in the initial philosophy of Tezos, we wanted mostly uh, small smart contracts uh, that were publicly auditable. So you you would have this uh, simple language that was like a Turing complete, uh, better version of Bitcoin script, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And the the thing is that the, this experiment uh, didn't pan out. Uh, people do want to write complex logic and we need uh, complex logic and things like this. So um, that, that's why uh, higher level languages were developed. But yeah, that, that's why it, it sometimes feels like Mikkelsen is you know, between a low level language and a high level language. So g- given this, I think it's really important to move on uh, to higher level languages because Mikkelsen uh, wasn 't designed as the most efficient VM possible, and if we want if we want to move to this uh, then people like should not get used to think in michelson terms and rather in higher level terms so that when we uh, move to a better vm uh, let 's say uh, a VM that is close to, to some assembly language uh, their whole training in michelson doesn 't become uh, obsolete or whatever so right. Uh, I think like uh, higher level languages like Lego should be the right level of abstraction to think about the blockchain.
1: Yeah, that's that makes a whole ton of sense. Because I mean, for this episode, and I think for maybe one of the previous one or two that we did, I was kind of looking into Mickelson a lot and just reading through the syntax. You know, I can kind of see why you wouldn't directly want to write in uh, this language. So, like having something like Lego, which is more writable, which is more readable as well, which is very important, uh, I think that really enhances the developer experience for uh, the e- ecosystem.
2: Agreed. Also, Lego like, is more similar to regular programming languages, so like, the yeah. learning curve is much smaller and you're less likely to make mistakes, which yeah. uh, the blockchain roles are quite costly, uh, to say the least.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. Extremely costly, as we've we, we've all seen in the past month or so. Uh, so the last thing that I had on my mind, and it, this kind of uh, builds on what you just mentioned uh, with regard to being more similar to certain languages, I did notice that Ligo also supports a various number of syntaxes. Uh, there is Pascal, Reason, and OCaml as well. And on the website, I also saw like the words like you can build your own syntax. So... Can you kind of talk about uh, why Ligo currently has Pascal, Reason, and OCaml? Like, I, I'm interested in programming, and I just want to know if there's, like, a reason that these three were chosen, as well as, like, if someone were to, quote-unquote, make their own syntax, like, what would be the high-level steps for someone to do that?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, so the reason for those languages are... Uh, more uh, coincidental than uh, carefully uh, designed three years in advance Mm -hmm. or something like this. got it. For Pascal, uh, the reason was that we wanted some imperative-like language, and we already had the parser ready and well-maintained and things like this, uh, from uh, Christian Rinderknecht working with us. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we had a solid piece of software that worked, so we already used it. Uh, for camel, um, the the reason was twofold. The first one is that we're in an ecosystem that relies a lot on OCaml. so a lot of developers who know camel, like will trans uh, will be able to translate their uh, knowledge like quite easily. Mm. Uh, so that's the reason for camel. The other reason was that liquidity was camel-based, and so we wanted to be compatible with liquidity at first. Uh, it was quite important back then. Uh, and the uh, last one, Reason Legal, was uh, because simply uh, a lot of people asked. Uh, like uh, we, we said that we could make a new syntax and things like this, and a lot of people were interested in Reason Legal. And the other person working on syntaxes on our team, sender, uh, comes from the uh, Reason ML ecosystem. So we, we have had uh, all the ingredients for the syntax. I see. Uh, we, we can add more syntax. We already had a prototype uh, like four months for a Python-based one and we might make a JavaScript-based one quite soon, uh, c like C-like JavaScript-like. The only thing that we're waiting right now is for refactoring of the front-end, so that uh, implementing a syntax will just be a matter of implementing an OCaml uh, module, basically. Right. So you have this very clear thing where you have a module type signature, which is like a bunch of things that you have to implement, and then you implement all of them, and you know that your whole syntax uh, is done. So right now we don't have this. So rather than a single module type signature, if you were to add your own syntax, you will need uh, to get into the like uh, front end library basically, and you will need to copy paste an existing syntax, which will be quite easy, but uh, not uh, as uh, fully understood as just implementing a uh, module uh, type signature basically. Right. Right now you can just go into, uh, like, uh, Legos GitLab repository, uh, go into the front end, uh, folder, uh, like a syntax that already exists, like Camel Ego, Reason Ligo, Prescaligo, copy paste the folder and make your own changes.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for, uh, getting really deep into that. Uh, if we'll be sure to, uh, include links to legalang.org. Uh, so you can read more about it if you want, if you're interested in writing a smart contract. For Tezo. So, with that, uh, I'm going to hand it over to Will and let's move on to protocol 007. Sure. So, I guess for our first question, um, prior
0: to injection of 007, you know, there was a lot of talk, and uh, I believe Sapling was expected to be in the next proposal. Um, Gabriel, could you explain the timing and rationale behind 007? For those who may not be aware.
2: Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> <The> big question. <laughs> no, no, no I, it's more that I had a lot of feelings associated with this. Yeah. Right. Uh, so the, the the nice way to put it would be to say that um uh, we basically uh failed with our um release process. Uh what I mean by this is that we have like a completely new thing. Uh, blockchains usually don't self-amend, so the, you, you don't mm-hmm. usually care uh, about the, the protocol code that much. Uh, you have some kind of hard force for security patches or things like this, but usually it's, um, it is very stable. However, here with Tezos, uh, given that we want to change our protocol, we have to care about a whole lot of new things that other blockchains simply don't. So we need to have a good release process, a good merge process, uh, a good way to uh, pick the features that we want to add while keeping consensus so that we don't have to ship out multiple competing proposals which would be detrimental uh, to right. Tezos. Uh, but, uh, if needed, we, we could, but it's better to, to have the consensus. So we need to worry about all those other things on top of uh, managing technical debt and, and the like. The problem uh, is So we we are uh, all new to this. No one uh, has done anything comparable uh, to this, to my knowledge. So uh, we needed to tackle new problems, and what we wanted to do was to do a release uh, with, uh, for instance, settling in it and not do anything before that. Um, That was a quite bad uh, idea because the problem is, um, let's say you you had some features ready uh, six months ago. Uh, then you will need to wait for sapling and a whole bunch of other features will need to wait for sapling. And this fact will make the uh, merge request, uh, well, the new amendment grow bigger and bigger. And the problem when uh, your amendment grows bigger and bigger is that the needs for reviews grow uh, bigger and bigger and so on and so forth. And so at that point in time, we had this very big uh, amendment that no one was very, very confident in. and. Um, the choice was made to trim, it, to trim it down to what we were fully confident uh, at that time and just ship mm-hmm. so that uh, we can move on to this new release process that is like more time-based rather than uh, feature-based. And uh, I say I have some feelings about this because, for instance, in the new amendments, you have a, a bunch of Mikkelsen optimizations, uh, which I've worked on and, uh, with uh, Nomadic. Uh, but uh, I actually wanted to do much more, and I had a prototype ready uh, four to five months ago uh, of a like, much better uh, Mikkelsen interpreter. Uh, so it, it's kind of uh, bittersweet. Like, uh, on one hand, uh, I, I actually had the time to make the full uh, new interpreter uh, back then, even though I was told that uh, like, uh, the next amendment will come in a month or two. Uh, but on the other hand, now uh, uh, with Delphi, we actually move to a time-based process, uh, and I'm quite confident that we will uh, never get such a problem uh, ever again. So what it means concretely is that whenever we need a new feature now, uh, one can just develop it uh, and have it accepted and be confident that it will be merged in the next uh, three to six months, as opposed to before, where we basically had six months uh, or more than this, actually, uh, without a proposal. So. Yeah, uh, it looks a bit rushed. And uh, that is the case, it, it was rushed uh, because we put like trimmed it down and we put like a lot of time in reviews and testing and things like this. Uh, and that's why there are like uh, much less features, uh, but uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that was um, like a necessary step from our point of view. Uh, and it's good that uh, it's now in the past uh, and that we, now, we will now have very regular uh, protocol amendments.
0: We recently saw the release of Dexter. Um, Gabriel, can you perhaps discuss how improved performance and reduced gas costs can help uh, create more DeFi applications for Tezos? <laughs> sushi. <laughs> Let's not have another sushi, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tezos sushi. That's one of the most straightforward questions uh, that have been asked so far. (laughs) Uh, Basically, when you develop a new smart contract, you uh, regularly encounter into those uh, two limits. The first one is the limit of the size of the contract um, because storing data on chain uh, costs money, basically, and we have a limit on the uh, on the size of the data uh, of your smart contract. Uh, so, with a bunch of those optimizations and things like this, uh, we we can have uh, like bigger contracts, and we could uh, increase the limits. And the other one is uh, the runtime limit. So, every time you run a smart contract, right, uh, you need to pay a price, uh, which is the the execution price, so that, um, for instance, people could not spam the Tezos blockchain with uh, millions uh, of transactions that that just right. uh, take a lot of time of, uh, out of the bakers and just toss the chain and hold the chain. So that's why there is a need for such pricing uh, of uh, operations. And uh, basically the, the more performance you, you make your interpreter, the more operations you can fit uh, and the less you have to worry about this limit when you're uh, doing like a DeFi contract. And if I remember correctly, uh, for like a lot of smart contracts, we had basically a forex uh, yeah, improvement uh, so it basically means that <laughs>
1: oh, wow. yeah, that's a big improvement. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. That's quite cool. So it means that you need to worry like, uh, <laughs> four times less about, uh, the size <laughs> of anything that you do.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, yeah, it, it's a quite straightforward question. Uh, the, the more efficient the interpreter is, uh, the laxer the limits are and the less you have to worry about them when developing Tezos.
0: Yeah. So outside of DeFi, um, what current limitations uh, are there on Tezos, on Mayman, and how will 007 help address some of those?
2: So there are two parts to the question. The first one is like what kind of limitations we have. And the mm. second one is uh, which one will 007 address. So 007 is a minimal amendment that is more about the release process itself and the features that it comes with. Uh, and it mostly addresses uh, performance. So it won't address the other problems that I will mention. Um, so, from a point of view, when, when uh, you want to uh, do a new thing on Tezos right now, you, you will basically have, uh, I would say, three kinds of problems. The, the first one is performance, which is uh, uh, addressed by O07 and by a wide margin. Uh, the second one is common to all blockchains. Uh, it's uh, concurrency. So concurrency is uh, a big problem in computer science. It's when you want to have multiple programs on blockchain smart contracts uh, interacting with each other. Uh, when, whenever you hear about like an exploit on Ethereum, it's always a concurrency issue. Uh, reentrancy bugs are just like we fucked up with concurrency. <laughs> so uh, the, the question is uh, how to manage concurrency on blockchains. Uh, and uh, with, like before answering this question, you might care about how do we manage concurrency in regular programming? And the, the answer is that uh, we don't. It's very painful and leads to a lot of problems. And uh, for instance, if you look at uh, the web, like web programming, you constantly have new frameworks. Uh, at first, you just had the DOM. Then you had jQuery that lets you manipulate the DOM in a better way. Then we had Angular, React, and all those things you know, with reactive programming and all those things that are always about managing multiple uh, competing piece of state and interact well. And the answer is that it's just really hard. (laughs) And even in regular programming, we don't have a definite answer. And if you look at blockchains, it's like, it's even worse. Like blockchains are uh, (laughs) the hardcore mode of programming. Uh, When you write you cannot change it anymore. So it means that if you have a bug, then you have a bug. Uh, and that's it. It's not like regular programs where like in your front-end application, you can just push a, like a patch or whatever. The second thing is that blockchains, uh, like blockchain contracts, blockchain programs have much higher stakes. Uh, everyone like uh, want to pump them so that they can get the, the amount that is in them basically. And uh, the, the last problem is that, uh, let's say I'm making a financial application in the regular world. Uh, I can just host it on my server and not expose the source code to anyone. Uh, people will just interact with requests to my server, like mm-hmm. uh, on their browser or whatever. However, with blockchains, all the code that you write is public and open source. So, <laughs> in, in blockchains, you have to manage concurrency uh, in a very adversarial environment where it's yeah, yeah. open source and where you cannot make patches. Uh, <laughs> And the answer is that this is very, very hard. Uh, And it is hard in Tezos, it is hard in a lot of other blockchains. Uh, In Tezos, to alleviate this, what we did was pick a message passing style for interaction uh, between smart contracts. So what it means is that if you have a smart contract, uh, let's call it A, and you want to call a smart contract B, then you cannot just call B in the middle of the execution of A. You have to wait until A is over, so, that you send a message to B so that B uh, does whatever uh, it needs to do. And the advantage of this model is that you don't have two contracts being executed at the same time as you have with Ethereum. A reentrancy attack is when you have a contract calling another contract that calls you back, basically. So, you have multiple competing, uh, competingly executed contracts. Whereas nice. you don't have this. Uh, a single contract is being executed at, at a given time. Uh, the problem with this is that the developer experience is terrible. Uh, it's a really hard model. Uh, it, it, if you want to just get the, the data of another contract, you, you have to make basically two new operations. Uh, it, it's not uh, efficient and things like this. So it's safer than Ethereum in that uh, you don't have to think about uh, two contracts being executed at the same time but it's harder in that you still have to emulate this functionality yourself. Mm. So it's only in 07, but uh, there are like uh, a couple of uh, things that I've worked on that aim to solve uh, this problem, or at least uh, mitigate it. The first one is views. Um, The idea of views is that you can just call another contract to get some of its data, but that other contract cannot do anything but show you uh, its piece of the data. Uh, the technical reasons why uh, this makes sense are complicated, but uh, what matters is the uh, developer experience. For the developer experience, what it means is that you can just access the data of other smart contracts like regular function calls. Mm-hmm. So that's the first one to use. Uh, It might come in 08. And the second uh, the second one is tickets, which will definitely come in 08. The idea of tickets is that you uh, to add a new data type that represents uh, a permission or a token. And the idea is that you can just send it to other contracts. So it means that no contract uh, like ERC20 or uh, FA2 or things like this have to represent the state of all tokens of all contracts. It's just your contract holding its tokens. Um, it makes for a much more intuitive model. Uh, <laughs> rather than a ledger, you just have your cash on yourself, your assets on yourself. and. Uh, I- much safer one and much more resilient to concurrency. Uh, Tickets uh, still make sense in a fully asynchronous models with shards, with layer twos and things like this. Uh, It's a quite neat model. Uh, This one is informed from uh, object capabilities, which uh, I believe have been developed by uh, Mark Miller. And we uh, spend a lot of time trying to put it into Tezos. And basically once you have tickets, it, it, it should become quite easy Uh, to have, like, smart wallets with, uh, you know, advanced permissions and things like this, where you just have to send the equivalent of a token to another contract that will represent your permission. So those are the two things that we're uh, doing to solve the concurrency problems right now, uh, which are views and tickets. Um, And uh, the last problem that you might encounter on Tezos right now um, is the lack of a fully automated way to interact with a smart contract. What I mean by this is that when you have a smart contract, you want to interact it, uh, in a, interact with it on chain. Uh, so you have the interface and the entry points, but you also want to display stuff off chain, for instance, in your wallets, uh, in indexers, in applications and things like this. And right now, you basically need uh, to do, uh, to write by hand solution. There is no standard solution for this. So a couple of standards are being developed, like tc uh, 16 for metadata uh, and things like this. Uh, but uh, the the easiest thing will be to add it into the protocol Uh, and it might come to either uh, 08, which I'm not confident in, but uh, 09, uh, definitely. And the idea is that you will have views, you will have uh, events, you will have metadata, uh, you will have functions to be used by indexers and things like this. And you could just develop your contracts with those and then all the tools uh, will take care of this. It will be integrated in wallets, it will be integrated in block explorers, it will be integrated in indexers and in applications like very easily without you having to do anything. So that will be the, the last thing. So just to, to summarize the, the three problems that you might encounter uh, by building apps will be performance, which has been addressed by 07 and will keep being addressed in the future. The second one was concurrency. Which will be addressed by uh, at least partly by uh, views and tickets. And the last one is uh, automated interaction uh, and tools with your contracts, uh, which are being worked on uh, both uh, with um, new uh, uh, standards like TZIP 16 and uh, protocol amendments.
1: All that is really interesting, and especially the security talk. Like, you know, you see all of these talks about hacks and stuff, and you, uh, read all of the news articles on cointelegraph or the block or whatever you read but like the term concurrency it you never really see that term in in these kinds of things and it makes me really want to look into it because because i've never really read much about it i just did a quick google search and i see some stuff about concurrency on ethereum but it it really makes you think like blockchain is really the perfect storm for malicious actors to attack, right? First of all, you have this kind of novel way of executing code across a bunch of decentralized nodes, which was not really possible before, you know? And you have all this code and you have to kind of uh, account for like the latency and stuff like that. And then you also have, like you said, the open source code where anyone can read it online and if they have this like slight edge over the devs and they can spot a bug or something in that code they can instantly like manipulate that and make a ton of money for themselves so that's like it's just like the perfect storm for malicious actors and now that i know about this like concurrency thing i'm just so surprised that there is a lot of chains out there that haven't been attacked and i have to ask if it's like a question of they haven't been attacked yet do our hackers constantly kind of monitoring like the code bases for uh these slight edges that can uh be be used to basically like bring down the chain cause some issue like mint some tokens like this is like, like kind of off topic but do you have any thoughts on that like the the biggest hacks we've seen uh, In recent history i guess are kind of ethereum smart contract uh related you know but there is so many coins out there uh so i just wanted to get your thoughts on that
2: Uh, (laughs) it's a quite fun question so i don't know much about the uh, hacker world so i can only speculate uh if i had to basically um the thing is for instance with tezos it wouldn't be worth uh, for hacker to learn about Mikkelsen and things like this, uh, because Mikkelsen will likely change, for instance, uh, <laughs> in the next months and things like this, uh, where uh, we keep being improved and things like this. But for blockchains that are uh, stable, uh, it, it's, it can actually be worth it to uh, dig into their code base and look up uh, smart contracts vulnerabilities. So there are, there are then uh, it's just a question of you know opportunity costs and things like this. In blockchains that are stable, which one uh, have the, you know, uh, highest stakes in their contracts, uh, which one have the worst uh, developer ecosystem, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, questions like this. And also pass a certain uh, skill threshold. Like, let's say you're uh, that super hacker uh, who can hack any contract and things like this. Yeah. Um, Worth better to just hack legacy applications, or uh, do yourself some research, or write your own startup and uh, make a unicorn, or whatever. Uh, those are like those exploits uh, still require like uh, like a high level of skill.
1: You know? Yeah, and the way you execute it too, I guess, has yeah, to yeah. be. Yeah, um,
2: I'm not even talking about execution and laundering yeah. and money and all those things. Yeah, I'm literally just talking about the hiding part. So right. I explain a a fair amount of it, but uh, that's a a really bad model uh, of security. Uh, It's not what we should rely on. Um, Most of this model will blow up as blockchains uh, become more and more widely used. Uh, So yeah, I think concurrency is uh, like is a ticking bomb uh, that has exploded and will keep uh, exploding uh, in the incoming years as blockchains are more and more widely used.
1: Yikes, that's scary, but like in a way, I guess with newly developed technologies, it's kind of a growing pain.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Like you said, for instance, the term concurrency itself is not that much used in blockchain. We usually talk about security and in a very abstract manner. And Ethereum, the way that those issues are solved are like, um, you know, with an FAQ where you have recommendations about how you should write your contracts and things like this. Mm We don't have a neat model of uh, how concurrency works and should work and things like this. It, it's still a bunch of ad hoc patches, basically. Yeah. Uh, whereas, if you look at the like the literature in the research of the past decades, you have a lot of framework uh, to deal with concurrency. Uh, like so many, uh, <laughs> uh, you have a huge liter- literature, and it's not really uh, that widespreadly uh, used in blockchains yet. We'll see.
1: Wow, sounds sounds really interesting. I actually have a vacation the next few days, so this might be some <laughs> some good stuff to try to read. But, uh, Will, uh, you want to get back on track? Uh, I think there's a few more questions about uh, the new protocol upgrade coming up. Yeah, so
0: that was a very interesting uh, discussion. But... Tangent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, um, I always
0: go off topic, so yeah, go ahead, no. Will. <laughs> no, it's fine. What, one of my favorite features of the amendment process is invoicing. And it's, you know, kind of the idea that you can essentially name your price uh, as an invoice attached to a proposal and have the community and token holders, you know, be able to essentially decide on funding your work. Um 07 did not have an invoice attached. So Gabriel, could you Explain why and kind of discuss um, where you see the future of uh, protocol proposals moving forward.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, four hundred seven. I guess uh, it was not deemed uh, worth it, uh, possibly because, uh, for instance, sapling and other things were not right. part of it. So, like, uh, people might have taken it the wrong way if. Uh, we, uh, like, under-delivered and asked for an invoice or whatever. Uh, uh, <laughs> I admit I don't really care much uh, for such considerations. I explained this was a necessary uh, amendment uh, to move on to a much better release process and things like this. And from my point of view, like, it deserves uh, reward. But at the same time, like, all those people right now are being paid uh, by TF, so that they are in part already being paid by the community. Um, so, uh, yeah. I'm not sure that uh, invoicing is what's needed uh, in the very short term. However, uh, in the longer term, once we have uh, our code base of the protocol in a much better state, uh, once we have a lot of competing, uh, like a pipeline that goes like from uh, user needs uh, to how it might be expressed as an amendment to uh, an RFC and then to a merge request, then we will trace all these all things and then we could attach invoices uh, to particular uh, merge requests and then to amendments. And that would be great. If you want to go deeper into this, we could even go into prediction markets. So the, the idea is what? Uh, the idea is, uh, let's say uh, I make a merge request that adds, I don't know, um, that uh, multiplies the number of TX per second by hundred. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have this merge request. And then you will have prediction markets that are about the value of the test conditioned on this merge request being accepted into the protocol. So this gives you a market valuation of how much uh, this improvement is worth. And let's say the market say that uh, if uh, the TPS is increased by like a hundredfold, then the value of Tezos is doubled, okay? So uh, I, I'm not sure what the Tezos price is right now. Uh, let, let me check right now. I
0: think it's like um, $2, I believe.
2: Yeah, 2 25 mm-hmm. So let's say that condition on the TPS uh, being multiplied by 100, uh, we jumped uh, to uh, like uh, $4.5. Mm-hmm. So what it means is that it's worth at least uh, the entire, like the, this uh, amendment is worth at least the entire market cap of right now. So you could use uh, like at least this amount. Uh, Of course, you won't use the full amount uh, else there is like uh, no value produced uh, for a staker. So you like use, I don't know, 1%, 10%, uh, who knows? But then it would mean that you could found new uh, amendments uh, purely through the expected, uh, through their uh, future expected value, which is a crazy idea. Uh, Like let's say you have it on the blockchain, you could then reuse the same kind of things for states. You could fund massive uh, commons projects uh, through the expected increase in tax revenue uh, through the increase of GDP. And that's the whole notion of futarchy. So uh, I don't think we're there yet. Uh, In Tezos, we
0: need. Yeah, let's see.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Um, So we need a bit more infrastructure. Uh, Arthur wrote some posts about it uh, for futarchy in Tezos. Uh, I've mentioned like, this whole pipeline where we uh, get the features, uh, then get them integrated into RFC, then the merge request, then tracing all those things, and then giving them the uh, financial value and so on and so forth. But uh, <laughs> once uh, once we have this, it will be super great to have feature our Uh That's one of the main things that I'm interested in. Uh, I don't talk a lot about it right now because we're still not ready and I'm still working on the underlying infrastructure with other people Uh, but once it's ready uh, I think we should like go all in this and um, I think here blockchains have the role of uh, I'm not sure how you call this in English precursor Uh, like the the first the first people to explore something and the idea is that if it works on blockchains then you could then use this same mechanism for states for big companies and all organizations that need to price uh, commons, and if you had this, you will have this future where you will have a market for commons, which is incredible. Uh, it means that you will get paid uh, <laughs> to do good, uh, <laughs> and you will have like a direct uh, measure of your worth. Uh, so that that will be a really great idea.
1: <laughs> that's that's super awesome. You know, i I didn't think uh, about this invoice thing up to that scale. So definitely a lot to to reflect on it's just the magnitude of this and the potential uh, of this you know if all of this goes mainstream in the future i think it uh, has the potential to be you know just extremely beneficial to society at large
2: yeah i agree that's why i think it should not be rushed and it should be done mm-hmm. like in a really maintainable way agreed. So everyone can go on top of this
1: Awesome. Well, I've got to say uh, that was one of the best conversations about Tezos I've ever had, so I really want to uh, thank you for your time here, Gabriel. Uh, so we're, we're just about ready to wrap up here. Uh, we'll be sure to include uh, all of the necessary links that we have mentioned uh, in this podcast. Will, did you have anything else to add? Uh, no, I, I don't. Um, thanks for coming on, Gabriel. Uh,
0: be sure to check out and learn a little bit more about Lego lang and obviously uh stay tuned on the progress
1: of oh seven all right thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of test talks radio